Um, we were going to do a series today called uh, Spring Fling. We were going to talk for a couple weeks about relationships, specifically about how to connect in relationship, not just romance, but just relationship in general. And we were going to talk about how to repair relationships when they feel broken. Uh, but I, I felt strongly not to do that the next couple of weeks. And so instead, uh, God put a, a word on my heart for this week. Uh, one of our assistant pastors, Ladina Doherty, put a word on her heart for next week. And so we're just going to follow the leading of the Spirit, which we do when we plan our series. But there are some unique things going on that we feel we need to address and uh, want to do this. And so um, if you could just, I, I would invite you today, and, and last week for Easter, I kind of talked about this idea of gardening and house plants and how you have to prepare soil in order to receive, in order for plants to grow. And I encourage you today, just prepare your hearts. Whatever it looks like to prepare your heart to receive from God, if it's just asking him now to allow you to receive, to soften your heart so you can receive, I believe that God would love to do a work in our hearts today. And as I was preparing for the message I have for us today, um, the Lord started to put on my heart the um, literally dozens of people in our church who are dealing with chronic pain. And I was thinking about it as I'm talking to so many people about chronic pain, and not just pain, but maybe a chronic illness that, that causes debilitating pain or, or, or causes someone to be unable to function at the level that they uh, would wish to do and that, that God desires for them to function at. And as I was thinking about that, I had this thought, and, and stay with me because this thought's going to sound rude, and, it, and it's not. The thought I had is I'm tired of hearing about everybody's pain. But, but as, I, as I thought that, I, I knew what I was thinking, and I knew what my heart was saying. It wasn't I was tired about people complaining, because you need to voice your pain. You, you need to share and process pain with other people. And I realized what my heart was saying is, I'm tired of people being in pain. I'm not tired of hearing about it. Please share. But I, I'm tired of people being in pain, because it pains my heart to know that people struggle with pain so much. Does that make sense? And, and so this message today, it might not seem like it has anything to do with pain, uh, but it does. It might have to do with chronic illness, chronic pain. But I'd like you to just keep that in mind as, as we begin to go through some passages of Scripture. And I just want to invite uh, God's Word to do what God's Word does and, and, and work in power and in action and to make an impact and a difference even in your physical body and in your heart as we read through some of these things. And so as we finish uh, the message today, we're going to uh, make an opportunity uh, for you to, to come forward for prayer. Or you can do that after the service if you don't want to do that at the end. But we just want to be here for you uh, to pray for you. But something a little odd I'll ask you to do now is if you, have, if you have someone that you're with or you know someone that's here that struggles with chronic pain or chronic illness, um, would you go like sit by them if you know someone here that does that? If they're, maybe they're here by themselves. Or if you're here, like would you make sure you're by someone you can just be praying for that person throughout this message today because God strongly put that on my heart, that today we're going to pray for healing from chronic pain and chronic illness while we go through this message. And so um, if, if that's you, like move, find someone to sit by and, and pray for one another as, as we look through some of these things. And so I'm going to speak today on a, on a message I'm just going to call um, greater. I'm going to call this today greater. And I was thinking about this idea of greater, a couple things came to mind was that how many of you have ever had an, an old person come up to you? Maybe you are an old person. So this is, you, ha, you, you didn't used to be old. You had people older than you at one point. 
but you had an older person come up to you in, in your young, spry days, and they said to you, you know, it really doesn't get better than this. How many of you that really encouraged? Like, oh, my life is not going to get better. So, you know, you're like this 17-year-old kid, and, and, and this, you know, the really old 35-year-old man comes up to you and says, it's, it's not going to get any better than this. That doesn't give you any hope or, or, or for a future. Or, but, and, and while I would say, like, there are times in life where, like, these are really, really great, and I was talking this week to some teenagers, and I was like, there are things that are coming that are better. But in a lot of ways, like, we can say, physically, it doesn't really get better than this. <laughs> like, really live this up. You, you don't, because a lot of times teenagers are like, I just can't wait until I'm, you know, 20, 25, 30. Knock that off. Enjoy now. Enjoy now. Things will get greater. Things get better in different ways, but every stage of life that you're in can be really, really great. So think for a moment of the greatest memory of your life. What are some of the greatest memories of your life? For me, uh, one of the greatest memories, without even thinking about it, it just pops into my head, just like the birth of my first child and, and being there and seeing that take place. That is such a new and amazing thing if that's something you've experienced before. I think a, a special moment on on vacation and enjoying things that just seem so amazing. As I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking about my wife and I like five years ago. We're in Kauai, and we were just, just taking in the, the sunset and the sea turtles and the ocean and the rocks and the above 70-degree temperatures and the lack of rain. It was just like, oh, this, this feels great. And as I was experiencing those great things, I never thought, um, this is the best it will ever get. I actually had hope that, that there could be something greater than what we experienced. Um, how many of you, I'm thinking about this, but can think of a sequel of a movie that was actually better than the first one? Anybody think of one? Don't, don't say it out loud, but think, like, can you even think of a, a sequel that's better? Um, for me, I was thinking, and this is like the worst example, but whatever The Hunger Games Part 2 is, I felt was better than the first one. Um, the third one was trash. Uh, but, but like, there's every once in a while, like, there, there is a sequel that's better than the first. But usually it's like, why even try to capitalize on something that could be so great? You just can't get greater. That's why there's never been a sequel to Nacho Libre. It's, you just, you can't, you can't get better than that. So don't, don't even try. And so this idea of something being greater than something else. And I want to talk today about this idea of greater. And I'm going to start off in a strange place. I'm going to start off in Romans chapter 1. We looked at Romans basically all last week. But Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a church, uh, Christians in Rome. Even I believe he's writing to people that don't yet know Jesus in Rome. And by proxy, he's writing to us. This is how he opens his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, that's Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. From, from here on out, we believe this to be the, if not one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, something that people would, would rehearse and, and cite and memorize to remember who Jesus was. And so I'll start with the beginning here. Concerning Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. 
declared to be the Son of God, and then what's, what's the next two words? Say it out loud. Declared to be the Son of God in what? In power. Declared to be the Son of God in power. He's saying, this is how we know that Jesus was according, not just through his power that was displayed, but according to the spirit of holiness, it was declared in power by his resurrection. That's what we looked at last week. His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. I love that he throws that in there. It's almost as if, hey, there's some people reading this who are called to belong to Christ and you don't yet, and so take this step of faith and trust in Jesus who was declared to be the Son of God through his power, specifically the power of the resurrection from the dead. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of the greatness of Jesus because Paul says this is the great, powerful works of Jesus. This is this creed that the church will recite and rehearse. But here he says... This is why I want you to believe. And so let's look at some of these facts about Jesus. Just a bullet point real quick is Jesus was foretold of by prophecy. Jesus was a descendant of David. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus performed miracles. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 from loaves and fishes. Jesus controlled nature by stopping storms. Jesus healed the sick. He healed the lame. He healed the deaf. He healed the mute. He healed the blind. And he even healed the earless. Look that up. Jesus cast out demons. He raised the dead. He walked on water. These are some of the powerful works of Jesus. But Jesus didn't just do miracles. Jesus lived a holy, obedient, righteous life. He laid down his holy, innocent life on a Roman executioner's cross. He took on the sins of the entire world. He bore the wrath of his father for those sins. His excruciating death bore witness by signs in the heavens above and signs of the shaking earth below. His excruciating death was witnessed by the the curtain in the temple uh, separating the Holy of Holies from the public place torn from the top to the bottom. And the Bible even says, strangely, we, we never talk about this, but it says that when Jesus died on the cross that there were some saints, is the word that the Scripture uses, that rose from the dead when he died. We never talk about that. But even his death was attested to by miracles going on around him. He was buried and sealed in a tomb, guarded by Roman soldiers, and resurrected on the third day. He was witnessed by and he interacted with um, literally over a thousand. Following his resurrection, uh, Jesus transported from place to place the road to Emmaus. Look that up. He walked through locked doors. He ascended bodily into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Uh, After Jesus ascended to the Father, he appeared to Stephen. He appeared to the Apostle Paul. He appeared to uh, John the disciple. He was declared to be the Son of God with, what's the word? With power. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. Signs, wonders, miracles, and the authority of God went with Jesus everywhere he went. So if to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, if to be a Christian is to be a a little Christ, you see the word Christian is actually a derogatory term. People started calling people Christians because they're like, oh, you just look like little Jesuses. That's, that's a great honor to be called that. 
But, but if we're supposed to be little Christ, if we're supposed to reflect Jesus, if we're supposed to resemble Jesus, and if we truly have the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead living within us, like we talked about last week, then the question I have is, how do our lives uh, line up with that? How do our ministries display that type of power? How does our effectiveness bear fruit to the power of Jesus? What does our fruitfulness in our life look like? If, if this is what Jesus did, if these are some of the things that accompanied those who believed and followed Jesus, how are we doing with that? What does our life look like in comparison? So I'm going to walk you through a couple accounts in the life of Jesus because Jesus called these, these disciples. Well, we did a series a, a couple of months ago about the disciples of Jesus. But Jesus called his disciples, uh, 12 apostles in particular, and before they really knew anything about what they were doing, before Jesus gave them any full kind of picture of what they were going to do, Jesus sent them out in power to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here, and they didn't even know what that meant. They had a lot of assumptions about what it meant, but it's not fully what it meant, but Jesus still sent them. And if you're looking at Jesus from an administrative leadership level, you're like, why on earth would you send these guys who have nothing together and know nothing? Why would you trust them with that kind of authority and power? But he sent them out in power to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. And so Matthew 10 verse 5 says, the 12 Jesus sent out, he instructed them in verse 8. This is the instruction. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, it's a pretty tall order. You've been following Jesus. You've witnessed some miracles. He sends you out and says, go do what I do. And they're like, we don't, even, we don't even know fully who you are. And this was before they were giving marching orders. This is before the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But they still went out, and to some level, they did it. They at least tried to do something. They actually took Jesus' words to heart. And they're like, okay, we'll go out and we'll do this. We'll, we'll, we'll attempt to pray for the sick that they would be healed. We'll, we'll attempt to confront demons and cast them out. Raise the dead, that sounds pretty crazy, but Jesus, whatever you say, we'll do. Now, I want you to know something that, that, that offends me, is that I know more than the disciples did at that moment. I know more fully about who Jesus is, and so do you. They didn't have a full picture. We have a fuller picture. We understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord tells us in Scripture that when we have much given to us, much is required, or the old Spider-Man saying, with great power comes great responsibility. So we know all this stuff about Jesus that the very disciples didn't know, and I would just ask myself, I won't ask you, but I will ask myself the question, how am I doing with, with this? And the answer is not too good. Before his final journey to Jerusalem, where he'd lay down his life, um, Jesus established his followers as a movement. He gave them a more defined idea of what they'd be doing. He promised them success in their obedience. He granted them authority in his name. And in Matthew 16, I want to point out another passage. Um, several weeks before his death, Jesus takes his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi. 
the furthest northern reaches of Israel to a pagan place where false gods were worshipped at the mouth of the Jordan River at the foot of Mount Hermon. And Jesus says to Peter, because Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter eventually says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven revealed this to you. And he says in verse 18, you are Peter, which means rock. He says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And so here amongst his 12 disciples, he says, I'm going to build something new. I'm going to build it on this rock, on this foundation. I'm sorry that my microphone keeps doing that. Um, Do you know if you could hand me a handheld? Um, That he says, this foundational truth that, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, that is what this church is going to be built on. And we look at that often and we think, okay, well, there's nothing new. These churches have always been. But what we fail to realize sometimes is that in Matthew 16, this is the first time the word church is ever used in the Bible. And the word church in Greek is this word ekklesia. And ekklesia is essentially a a set-apart people, a called-out people. And within the Roman world, it was essentially a political party of people who would worship Caesar for all intents and purposes. And Jesus says, on the foundation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build a new kind of called out people. I'm going to build a new type of people who are set apart, who will gather around, not to declare that Caesar is king or Caesar is Lord, but instead to declare that I am king and I am Lord. And that's why we say, as Christians, Jesus is Lord. And he says to Peter, I'm going to build this church and the gates of heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. What he's essentially saying is darkness won't be able to stop what God is pushing forward in light to do. We talked earlier about sequels that were better than the original or or originals that were better than sequels. How many of you um, like the, the Lord of the Rings films? Nerds. Um, the Lord of the Rings, you know, there's, there's epic battle scenes within, within this film. And in these epic battle scenes, there are, there are battle axes and maces and swords and bows and arrows and spears and all sorts of wonderful weapons of war. How many of you are grateful we don't fight wars like that today? It's, it's horrific. But I've never seen in the Lord of the Rings or any other Nerdfest film I've never seen people fighting with, with, with gates before, running with gates and just fighting with them. And, and when Christians read this verse, we oftentimes think the big bad devil is out to get us. And so we need to hold ourselves up and we need to protect ourselves in a holy huddle because the devil's coming after us with gates to hit us in the head. But gates are not offensive things, are they? They're actually defensive. We put up gates to protect ourselves. And so in knowing that, what we see is that Jesus says that when you put up a gate, when you put up a barrier, and and when the enemy is trying to protect himself, and when the forces of darkness are under attack, you can go up against that gate, and the gate cannot prevail against the church when it's called out to expose darkness with light. 
And Jesus says something really strange in verse 19 that, again, one of these things we never talk about in Christianity. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are not words we use. Um, We don't use bind and and loose very often in, in culture. I don't know if you have some kind of job where you use those terms, but I don't use those terms. And Jesus says, I'm giving you the key so that when you bind something, all of heaven has your back. And when you loose something, all of heaven has your back as well. And so theologians struggle about what this means. And some will say, well, this means that if you act in authority and discipline, and if you call wrong, wrong, then heaven has your back. And if you call right, right, then heaven has your back. And I would say, yes, that's true. But Jesus says, when you go out against the forces of darkness. And if you follow this idea that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, the darkness, the enemy cannot stop you. And so if you go out, Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And so if you do something in my name for my purpose and my will, it will be done. And if you choose to, to stop something in my name according to my will by the power of my spirit, it will be done. And so he says, you've got authority through me, not because of anything you've done, but because of what have I've done. And you have access to the Father through me. And so act like it. Act like Jesus Christ has your back because he does. Act like God is for you because he is. Act like the Spirit of God is empowering you because as a follower of Jesus, he is. And so Jesus says, okay, guys, I sent you out before in power, but now you have a little bit more of an understanding. I actually am sending you out like warfare to stop the works of the enemy. And when I'm with you, you cannot fail. And so we look back on this and we think, okay, yes, and amen, but Jesus still hadn't died yet. Jesus still hadn't resurrected from the grave yet. Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father yet. Jesus had not sent the Spirit yet. And we have all this information that these disciples did not have. How are we doing with that? If there is great responsibility with this kind of information and power, how are we doing with that responsibility? And I can speak for myself and say, not too good. Not too good. So we move on. They make it to Jerusalem weeks later. Jesus is is having this this final uh, Passover meal with his disciples. And he's about to walk from uh, the, the mountain that they're on, Mount Zion, in the city of Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, over to the Mount of Olives, where, where he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would be arrested. And, and Jesus gives this long discourse, this long teaching to his disciples. And on the evening before his death in John 14, Jesus says something that I do not like. How many of you are brave enough to say Jesus says a lot you don't like? You're like, Pastor, I love everything Jesus says. I do whatever he asks me to do. Well, you are so holy and righteous. But there's things Jesus says I don't like because it, it, it makes me have to do something with it. And sometimes I don't like having to do things, especially things that require great amounts of faith, great sacrifice. So John 14, verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. What he's saying is, 
Guys, you've seen me these last three years. I and the Father, Jesus had said previously, are one. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. Believe me because you sense my presence. You've seen my works and my miracles. You've heard my teaching. God the Father has revealed me to you. But he says, if you don't believe because of those things, just look at the works and see that I'm doing great things. Verse 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Here's the part I really don't like. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some of you will read that and be like, Yes, the Lord wants me to be wealthy. This is confirmation of my mansion, of insert here, your dream car, a 1964 Volkswagen bug. This is, this is it. This is confirmation. God wants me to be rich and wealthy and fly on private jets. That's not what he says. He says, you ask me anything according to my name, according to my will that brings me glory and it will be done. We ask things according to the will of God, and we look back to Matthew 16. What kind of things are we asking for? We're asking for power and authority to go up against the forces of darkness to make an impact for the world, for Jesus Christ, and to bring God glory. It is not about the stuff that we get. It's about the glory we bring to God. So he says, if you believe in me, you'll do these things and greater things. But you've got to ask me. You've got to ask according to my glory, my will, my name. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We may not like it, but those things are tied together. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Essentially, what the Lord is saying is, you don't come before me asking me for all these big, atrocious, amazing, wonderful, giant things, but yet not be willing to follow me. If you love me, you'll follow me and you'll come to me and you'll pray according to my will. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. He's talking to the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit. Because he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying, you're going to recognize him because he's with you now. Because I and the Father and the Spirit are the one true God. And you will know the Spirit because you know me. And you know the Father because you know me. And you know me because you know the Father. And I'm going to send the Spirit. And you're not just going to recognize him, but he's actually going to be within you. This has never happened before. In the Old Testament, people were clothed with power from the Holy Spirit, a small select group of people. But now in Christ, those who follow Jesus, trust in Jesus in faith for their salvation, will be filled with the Holy Spirit inside of them. So Jesus says, you guys know the works that I did? And they're like, you mean that wedding thing, the water wine thing, the the walking on water stuff? Do you know the works that I did? He says, believe in me on account of those at least. And guys, if you believe in me, you'll do those things too. Actually, you'll do greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. 
and I'm going to send the Spirit. And you can ask me anything according to my name. You can ask me anything according to my will that brings glory to God. And with the Spirit empowering you, you will do great things, no greater things. And they must have thought, oh, this has been a waste of our time. These three years have been a waste. Because how on earth will we do anything that Jesus did, let alone do greater things than he did? We're out. And in doubting the words of Jesus, they're, they're kind of in a way, they're, they're likely not doubting Jesus but because they've seen Jesus do these things. Who are they actually doubting? Yeah, they're doubting, you can't use me. You, you can't use me. Depart from me. Like Peter said, I, I'm a sinful man. You can't use me. And when we, when we read this passage, I can't speak for you, but I, I can speak for myself, that most of the time when I read this passage, I'm like, this ain't true. I don't believe it. I don't believe it because I haven't seen it. How can I do the things that Jesus did? How can I do greater things than Jesus? And so to answer that question, we have to look at what Jesus actually means. What do we know for absolute fact here in Scripture? The greater things that Jesus is talking about, they're going to be done because of his finished work on the cross and through his resurrection, which is about to happen the next couple of days. That's why it's going to happen. So if we can just look at the bare minimum, we could say the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is something greater than they had seen up to this point. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, people will be able to experience salvation and have the power of the Spirit living within them. And if we just look at that alone, we would say that's greater. That's greater than what they'd seen. We know these things are going to happen because the Spirit is coming. Something else that we know when we look at the facts here. It's not that I will do greater things than Jesus. It's not that you will do greater things than Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is these things will be done through us. By him. Not, it's not by our mind, not by our power, but, but actually through Jesus. And so if you've ever seen a miraculous, great, wonderful thing that can only come from God, it never comes at the hands of the person who has prayed for you here on this earth. It always comes from God. People are just conduits. People are nothing without God. I was listening to a leadership podcast yesterday and how, how people will turn away from Christianity or they'll turn away from the church or they'll turn away from the idea of ministers or pastors because, because some of them mess up. Well, we all mess up. I don't know about you, but I've messed up. You've messed up. It's not about people. It's about God. It's about putting our trust in Jesus, not in a person or a leader or someone who's charismatic or has money or this or that. It is about God and God alone. And so the, what are the greater things? The greater things are people being saved from their sins by Jesus Christ. That's the greater thing. People being saved from sin and for life with God. That is greater. And so theologians will look at this like, okay, we get it. And so the greater things that Jesus is talking about are going to be greater things that the church will do collectively over the course of thousands of years, filled with the Spirit, making an impact in the world today. And I would say, I can get behind that. 
I can get behind this idea. The greater things that Jesus is saying, yes, they will be done through you. And I believe that does mean they will be done through the millions and millions of people who make up the church throughout human history. But while that's true, there's personal context. Jesus in Matthew 16, he already used the word church. He doesn't say greater things will the church do. What Jesus actually says is, Whoever believes, greater things will, and he adds a pronoun, greater things will he do. It doesn't say if the church believes, greater things will the church do. It says whoever believes, greater things will he do. And Jesus doesn't say whatever collectively the church asks, I will do. He actually says whatever or anything you ask. And he doesn't say because the spirit dwells in the church. He says because the spirit dwells in you. So with the finished work of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, with the sending of the Holy Spirit to some level, an individual believer will be able to do greater works than Jesus. And even by saying this, I feel like a heretic, like, oh my gosh, I just said I'm, I'm equal with Jesus or better than him. But that's not the point. The point is it's, it's Jesus that does the work. The point is it's the Spirit that does the work. It's not us. Jesus is saying, you're going to be able to experience me do great things. I'm going to be gone for a while, but I'm going to send the helper so that you can experience the things that the helper will do on behalf of the Father in my name. It's all about me, Jesus is saying. And where Christians go wrong here, especially those who think this is all about the jets and the mansions and the cars, is they think, yes, I'm going to do better than Jesus. But it's just that, no, Jesus will do greater things, and we can actually experience that. And so we read this verse, and we're like, ah, oh, because it just feels so weird. Instead, we, we change it to this. More mediocre works than these will I do. I know, Jesus, you said, you said we'll see great things. Jesus, you're crazy enough to say we'll do greater things, but I don't believe it. And so more mediocre things than these will I do. And as a result, we live our lives in mediocrity and not actually pursuing greater things. And so because we have this idea more mediocre things will we do in Jesus' name, we don't see the greater things he promised because we don't have the faith that they can be done through us. And this is, this is where I'm at, guys. This is where I'm wrestling. I believe Jesus can do it, but I, a lot of times, most of the time, if I'm being transparent, I don't believe he can use me. And I, I bet you've thought that way before, too. But that's kind of the beauty in it. That's the humility in it. That I am nothing, and he is everything. And so we don't ask anything in Jesus' name because we don't really think he'll do it. We rarely do anything in the power of the Spirit because we don't think he's going to be able to use us. And so because of these things, we're not willing to take the risk. We're not willing to put in the work. And most of us are not willing to pay the cost that it would take to see greater things which is a sign of not keeping his commandments. Remember Jesus said, oh, you'll do greater things. Whoever loves me keeps my commandments. The commandment in context here is actually asking him to do great things for his glory. 
Uh, there's an author and pastor named Mark Batterson, and I'll, I'll paraphrase a quote that he has. And, and Mark Batterson says, um, the greatest prayers that never get answered are the prayers we never prayed. God's going to accomplish his will either way, but we're never going to have a prayer answered that we never prayed. But at the same time, I'm very grateful that I've prayed a lot of prayers that God hasn't answered. How many of you are grateful for that? Because sometimes we pray for really stupid things that are all about us and not about him. And so because we think we're only going to do the more mediocre, we'll fail to pray, we'll fail to ask, and we will not take the risk, and most of us will not pay the cost that it would take to see those greater things. So the next day, after John 14, Jesus lays down his life. And on the third day from that day, he picks it back up again. He resurrects from the grave. And at some point between his resurrection and his ascension to the Father, he gives one of the commandments he was talking about. Whoever loves me obeys my commandments. He gives a commandment in Matthew 28. We call this the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. He gives the order, and then he reminds them again. Don't worry, guys. I'll be with you. Go do it, but I'll be with you. Reminds me of Moses when, when God wanted to use him to lead the Israelites into their promised land from slavery. Moses is like, I'm not going if you're not going with me. And Jesus here, over a thousand years after Moses, he says, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to a greater place. You're going to do greater things. And if, and if you start to doubt, if you start to worry, if you start to wonder or second guess, don't worry because not only has all authority been given to me, but I will actually be with you. And that's why David wrote a thousand years earlier, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And so Jesus gives a greater mission, a greater mission than these disciples had ever had. Guys, here's the full picture. Look, I'm resurrected from the grave. Now go and make disciples. Go and do greater things. I'm giving you this full picture of what you are to do. I'm not sending you just to Israel or Samaria. I'm sending you to all nations much greater than what you know. And they finally get it, the disciples do. At this point, it's starting to click. It's starting to make sense because they just saw someone raise themselves from the dead. And mediocre is not in their vocabulary anymore. It's hard to have mediocre in your dictionary when you just watched a man raise himself from the dead. The word that replaces mediocre in the dictionary becomes greater. The desire to keep the commandments of Jesus, that desire increases when Jesus himself raises himself from the dead and conquers death. So he reminds them what he told them a couple of weeks ago. He reminds them of the reason that they're going to do greater things. And it's because he has the authority. He's proven it through his resurrection. He's going to be with them. And he's going to be with them through the spirit he promised. He's the rock of their foundation. The gates of hell cannot stop them. And so when he ascends to the Father in heaven, he reminds them of this one more time a couple of days later. He says, guys, one more time. This is how you're going to see greater things. This is what the greater things are going to result in. The greatest thing of all, people coming to know me. 
And we find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the last passage we'll read in context here. Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus is literally ascending to the Father in heaven as he speaks to 120 of his followers. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. It's like, guys, greater things are going to be done. You're going to receive power. And again, sometimes where the church goes wrong is we'll say, yeah, I love feeling the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason that God sent the Holy Spirit is to give me Holy Ghost goosebumps, and that's why, I, that's why I'm in it. I, I like feeling good. I, I like, it's all about me and Jesus. But Jesus says, no, the reason I'm sending the power is so that you will be my witness. Yes, I'll be with you. Yes, it feels wonderful to experience my presence and my power, but the reason is for others. The reason is to be a witness of my life, death, and my resurrection. And it happens through the power of my spirit that I'm sending. And he said, I'm going I'm to send you guys to greater places, to the entire ends of the earth. You're going to be my witness everywhere. So 10 days later, he ascends to the Father. And earlier, Jesus said, I want you guys to go and wait in that room that we ate that last meal at. And I want you to wait there, and I'm going to send the Spirit. And what I love about the disciples is they're waiting for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. They wait for 10 days. 10 days they're waiting. And what I love about it is they have no clue what to expect. And how many of us put expectations on how God's supposed to show up? And so when he does show up, we don't recognize it because we expected something else. They've got zero idea what's going to happen. And so in Acts chapter 2, it describes the moment when the Spirit comes and they're all together and it says there's this mighty rushing wind that comes in. Well, they probably weren't expecting that. But it reminds us of some things that happened in the Old Testament. And then it says there was, there was tongues like fire above their heads. You're like, well, that sounds weird. That's because that was crazy, freaky weird. And you're like, well, well there were actual tongues on fire? No, the disciples are like, we don't know how to describe it except for it's like tongues on fire. Weird stuff. They've got no clue of what to expect. And they start speaking out in other languages. And the book of Acts says, well, what are they saying in other languages? They are declaring the goodness of God, the wonders and the works of God. And there's all these people coming around this building, going to the temple on the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And they hear from that upper room, they hear their own hometown languages. And they're like, they didn't take Rosetta Stone. How do they know our language. These are a bunch of poor Galilean peasants. If someone is speaking in my language that shouldn't know my language, the only explanation that we have is they must be drunk. I've never seen someone get drunk and know how to speak other languages. And so this is what's going on. And Peter, who was so terrified before this moment, who said the stupidest things before this moment, he steps out into the crowd of thousands. He's like, hey guys, we're not drunk. This is what the prophets spoke about. Young men are having visions. Old men are having dreams. Men and women are prophesying. This is the spirit of God. This is what was foretold in the book of Joel. We're seeing it, guys. And as he's speaking, everybody starts to get convicted. They start to be aware of their sin. And they actually say, what should we do with this information? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for your sins. 
And it says, on that day, 3,000 were added to their number, which is more like 10 plus thousand because in that time, they usually only counted men. I call that greater. The crowd that day was, was greater than the crowd that Jesus had at the cross, which was four people. The crowd that day was greater than the crowd huddled in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. It was 120 people. Now it's a crowd of 10,000. Greater stuff, greater things. And Peter didn't come out of that room and say, yes, it feels great and it's all for us. Us four and no more. He remembers the words of Jesus that says, the Spirit's going to come and you're going to be a witness to the entire world and it starts here in Jerusalem with people from the entire world. And they heard the gospel, and they came to know Jesus, and the Spirit fell on them. And all of a sudden, if you read through the book of Acts with this idea, with this worldview, you start to see, oh, here's greater stuff. They started to speak in other tongues. They prophesied. They saw salvation. Greater greater crowds came to faith in Christ than had ever happened before. They experienced signs and wonders and healings and deliverance, so much so that some people stepped in Peter's shadow when they got healed. That's strange stuff. They resurrected the dead. This guy, Peter, resurrects this lady named Dorcas. Not the best name, but that was her name. Um, Paul resurrects a guy who falls asleep while he's preaching, falls out of the window. They have amazing visions. Peter's called to a guy named Cornelius. Paul's called to a guy in Macedonia. They saw their enemies and Gentiles experience salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit. On and on and on and on and on and on. Greater things did they do. Greater things collectively has the church experienced. They did what Jesus said. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can go to Acts 28, the last chapter of the account of what was happening in the church, and we can say we have a fuller understanding than they did. If we've read Scripture, we know more than these guys knew. How are we doing with that? And we ask ourselves, are the greater things for now? Are the greater things really for now? The answer is yes. Paul tells us those things won't be done away with until the perfect comes. The perfect is the coming of Christ. What about, are those really for us? Are we really going to do greater things? Can we really do the things the apostles did? Yes. Are they, I know they're for the church pastor, but are they for me as an individual? Yeah. Jesus said, whoever, whoever believes in me, greater things will, will he do. Are you sure? I'm sure because the word says it. My heart's still not there, but I believe it because Jesus said it. Have you witnessed greater things? Have you ever witnessed something great before? Have you? I hear stories from some of you like, you know, 30 years ago, I was on the mission field and I saw great things. People healed, people delivered, people set free. It was amazing. That wasn't just for Africa. That wasn't just for South America. That wasn't just for Haiti or Jamaica. It wasn't just for Russia. It's for wherever you are. If you're still breathing, if your heart's still pumping, and if there's still neurons firing through your brain, and if you are still following Jesus and you're still filled with the Spirit, greater things aren't for yesterday, they are for today. 
Why not? Why are we not seeing these things? It's because we only expect the mediocre. It's because we don't think God can use us. It's because we aren't praying big prayers. And is it because we're not willing to obey his commandments? Possibly. So why are we not doing this? Are we not willing to take the risk to pray for someone for healing? Are we not willing to invest the time that it takes to see greater things? Are we not willing to put in the work that it takes? Are we not willing to pay the cost? So if we serve this Jesus declared with power, if we're filled with the same spirit that rose him from the grave, from the grave, if we possess the same power as the spirit, how do our lives reflect this? How do we display this kind of power? One more verse, and I'll call Kim up to sing. Uh, Mark 16. Uh, I'm a Bible teacher more than a preacher, and so I want to give you some context here. Um, the end of Mark chapter 16, um, there are some old manuscripts of the Old Testament that do not have these two verses that we're about to read. And so sometimes we read these things and we'd say, like, we're not sure about the validity, but we do have some, some old manuscripts that have these passages of Scripture in it from Mark 16, 17, and 18. And the, the, the addition here um, that I believe the Spirit did compel to add on here to the book of Mark when it was first written. Uh, it's declaring things that the church saw happen after Jesus made this statement. So if you dig into the Bible, I, I just want you to know, like you might say, oh, this is a disputed verse, but it's revealed through the rest of the New Testament. Uh, it says Mark 16, verse 17 through 18. It says, these signs will accompany those who believe. So remember Jesus says, whoever believes, greater things will he do. If he asks in my name, because I'm sending a helper. And so here, Jesus says, these signs will accompany those who believe. This took place possibly um, in the upper room when uh, Thomas is doubting Jesus and wants to touch his side. I think that's when this conversation is happening. It says, greater things will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. In my name, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. You're like, that's where I'm out. <laughs> Are we going to be snake handlers? We don't even live in Alabama. But the thing is, is Jesus is talking about something that was about to happen with Paul. Paul was going to be on this island and shipwrecked, and they were going to be starting a fire, and a snake was going to jump out of a fire because snakes don't like fire. And a guy gets bit, and, and Paul's like, oh, I'll, I'll pray for you, and he's healed. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Oh, okay, that's where we're out. This sounds like Jonestown. We're not, we're not drinking poison. No, no, that's not the point. The point is not everyone who drinks poison won't die. The point is, is that greater things will happen in the life of a believer, and God can overcome any poison, any snake, any illness, any amount of chronic pain. The same spirit that rose Christ from the grave is alive in us, and these things can happen. It will happen, but we have to read it in context. It doesn't mean it's going to happen all the time because maybe your great-great-uncle Jimmy got bit by a snake and died. I don't know. Sorry if that happened. Um, but greater things will happen. It says they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover and he already told us how to do that he said if, if you ask anything 
in my name, for my glory, according to my will, it will be done. So would you bow your heads? I'm going to go into a time of prayer. Do these signs accompany you? Do these signs accompany you? And I'm the nitpicker here in this group. Like, whoa, I've never, I've never done this. Um, at Fellowship Church, we, we teach, believe that all gifts are available to the church today. But the Bible also says not all do all gifts. And so this doesn't mean, okay, every time we do this, this is going to happen. Every, you know, every believer is going to do this, 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 or this. But it just means greater things will we do when we believe, follow, put our trust in Jesus Christ. And I've seen some great things. And in this decade of my life, I don't want to look back and say, it doesn't get any better than that. that those were my glory days. Yeah, my, my, this, you're like the, the guy, like my senior year in high school in football, that, that was the best. Don't, that doesn't have to be the best year of my life. That doesn't have to be. Greater things. Greater things for 40-year-olds, greater things for 60-year-olds, greater things for 80-year-olds, greater things for 90-year-olds. It doesn't have to stop in what you think is the prime of your life. Jesus said we can experience greater things. Do these signs accompany you? Does greatness accompany you because it's actually supposed to? Have you ever been sick and prayed for healing and received it? Have you ever done this or this or this and received it? And you might say, well, pastor, I've prayed for healing for 20 years and God hasn't healed me yet. And I would say, man, I, I stand with you in solidarity and will keep praying for your healing. If for whatever reason God doesn't heal you, that doesn't mean you're anything less than someone else. It doesn't mean your faith is less than someone else. I don't understand why God answers some prayers how we ask them sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't. I don't get it. But I know that every time we pray according to his will, somehow his will is accomplished. And so Jesus tells a parable about asking for things and about a neighbor who goes and asks for bread because they've got a visitor in the middle of the night, and they're knocking on the door asking for bread, and the guy inside of the house says, I'm not going to come and give you bread because I love you and because you're my neighbor, but I'm going to give you uh, the bread because you're driving me crazy knocking on the door. And that's a, even a hard parable. Like, well, do I drive Jesus crazy? No, but he's just saying, keep knocking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, keep pleading. Keep believing, keep having faith, keep having hope that greater things can happen. So God, we thank you for your words, Jesus. These are all your words. Jesus, I declared earlier, I don't like these words because sometimes I struggle with them. But thank you for these words that make me struggle. Thank you that 
you told us that we can actually lay hands on the sick, pray for them to be healed. Lord, your word says, is, is any among us sick, uh, call on the elders of the church to uh, come and lay hands on them that they might be healed. So God, I thank you for your healing power. Your healing power does not come by the hands of, of a Christian, a pastor, a church. It comes from you. You simply use us to accomplish those things. So Lord, today we ask you to do greater things. So many of my brothers and sisters, even in this room, people who will watch or listen online, are dealing right now with pain that is not enabling them to do the things that they believe they are to do that you've called them to do. God, first and foremost, give them peace in Jesus' name. Give them joy in Jesus' name. God, we, we thank you that even in our suffering, that the suffering helps us to endure. The endurance does build our character, and character gives us hope. But God, we ask for healing. We don't stand here this morning and just ask for more endurance, more character, more hope. We ask, we ask for more healing, for greater things. We ask for those who are suffering from joint pain, from nerve pain, from pain in their organs, from chronic illness, from cancer. We ask for healing. Lord, I've talked to many people this week who who you've given the grace to doctors to be able to help them, but there's other health issues in the way that they can't get help. So God, we're asking for your help because we don't know what to do. We're asking for your healing because we don't know what to do. We trust you. We ask according to your name, Jesus, for your glory by the power of your spirit. God, more than any physical healing and more than, than any worldly need we might bring before you to ask for. What you desire most of all is you desire that none would perish. You desire that all would come to repentance. You desire uh, that we would come to be in relationship with you. So if there's anyone here today who does not know you, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would reveal yourself to them, show them their need for a Savior, give them faith to trust in you. And if that's you today, if you say, I don't know Jesus, but I want to know him, the same guy who wrote some of the passages we read today, Paul, he said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Jesus himself says, whosoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Back in Romans, Paul, who he says, if you confess, if you believe, he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. And sometimes that's exactly what salvation looks like, is just screaming of the word, help, Jesus, help. Not a formula, not a prayer, not a song, not a church, but Jesus, help. You're all I've got. I trust in you. I turn from who I am on my own, and I turn toward you. God, I pray for those who are struggling uh, with addiction this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray you'd free them. Jesus, your word today said that if we bind anything on earth, because you have given us the keys to the kingdom that it will be bound in heaven. And so, God, we ask for a binding of addiction to pornography, to substances. In the name of Jesus, we ask that you would 
you would bind that as we ask you in Jesus' name for your glory. God, free those who are stuck in the bondage of addiction. And in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would loose freedom on them, that you would loose a blessing on them, that you would loose um, joy because the cause of the addiction is depression. We ask in the name of Jesus that you would loose joy on their life that could only come from your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name and for your glory alone and for freedom in which you've set us free. You tell us if we lose something on earth that it will be loosed in heaven. And so, God, we ask for good things this morning. We ask for a breaking free of addiction, of alcohol, of drugs, of gambling, of sexual addiction that is perverse and not according to your will. In Jesus' name we ask. We ask God for a freedom from shame. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would remind every person here that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so as they, as they battle what they struggle with, because we all struggle with things, that it would be a conviction to seek greater things in you and not a condemnation of where we find ourselves in. God, for those with mystery illnesses that they cannot find answers to in the name of Jesus, I pray they would be healed. If that's you today, would you uh, reach over to the person next to you and just ask them to pray for you? Would you put your hands on the part of your body that you are struggling with, that you don't know the cause of the illness? In the name of Jesus, I pray for healed backs. In the name of Jesus, I pray for healed nervous systems. In the name of Jesus, I pray for healed bones. In the name of Jesus, I pray for healed joints. In the name of Jesus, I pray for healed livers and kidneys. In the name of Jesus, I pray for refreshment that would come over the bodies of those who are suffering right now. Lord, we sang a song as we opened this service, sung from the words of Lazarus, who you rose from the grave. And if you could raise Lazarus from a stinky grave, then you can heal our mortal bodies from the pain that we suffer. We ask for healing in the name of Jesus. God, for broken relationships, parents and children, marriages, whatever it may be, for broken relationships, God. Our relationships, they, they hurt much more than physical pain. And so we ask in the name of Jesus for healing of relationships. We ask for restoring of trust. We ask that you would bind distrust. We ask that you would bind unfaithfulness. We ask that you would bind um, confusion, bitterness, hard, hurt, hearts which have closed us off to relationship and instead God we ask for healing in marriage healing between family members healing between friends healing between siblings in the name of Jesus we ask for your glory in your name by the power of your spirit we're going to sing um, and I'll be up here I'll ask some of my uh, my leaders to join me off to the side if you'd like prayer today We'd love to pray for you while we sing these next couple of songs. There's communion here.